Welcome to democracyonthemove.org, a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, November 28, 2021. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. Today we're talking with Damon Davis, who has recently offered a position with the Public Defender's Office in Cincinnati, Ohio. He is close to graduating from the University of Cincinnati College of Law with a Juris Doctor degree. His passion is social justice. He practices his passion by advocating for criminal justice reform. Now, Damon has a special reason for his strong passions. He spent four and a half years in federal prison. After getting out of prison, he found himself homeless with only $26 to his name. He started working at a factory job and attended community college. After he obtained his undergraduate degree, several law schools offered scholarships. He settled on the University of Cincinnati and, as I said, is now close to graduating. So, Damon, welcome to Democracy and the Move, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Dan. So I'd have to say right off the bat here, there's not a high percentage of people who have done what you managed to do. You were uh, not only homeless, but before that, you spent some time in prison. Um, I wish, I really do wish that I could say that you're not the exception, that most people with your background would be as successful in assimilating back into society as effectively as you. Um, I think it's just sad that this doesn't happen very often. And, and here's the thing, I personally firmly believe that nobody lacks potential, but they are not provided the guidance and the help and the support needed to break free from a challenging past. So, so first, I'd like to hear from you what, what you believe made a positive difference in your life, what principles in life work for you? I think, uh, first of all, just my, my foundation, my background, uh, my mom, uh, was a minister. She passed away at the age of, uh, 42. Uh, from cancer, but just the foundation she instilled in me. Um, I think that was huge. Um, I uh, came across a lot of people while incarcerated who, you know, just looking at them, uh, you knew getting out that they just didn't have the foundation to fall back on, uh, mm -hmm. to be successful. And kind of like you said, without um, policies in place and programs to kind of help you, um, you, you kind of set up a failure uh, being released from prison um, without having a strong foundation. Because even if you want to do right, if you don't have the skills and the opportunity, then, you know, what you want really means nothing. Um, at the end of the day, you know, the Bible says a uh, uh, man will not despise a thief if he steals uh, to satisfy his hunger. Uh, but oftentimes in our criminal justice system, we even despise the guy who steals the you know, satisfy his hunger yeah. um, and just speaks to uh, how um, mm -hmm. much our system lacks compassion, I would say. Yeah, I, I read an article on you um, and you were quoted in that article as saying, and I'll quote here, uh, it's hard to understand if you haven't been in a prison environment, but you're just an afterthought to so many people. There are not enough people fighting for those who don't have a voice. And so that leads me to believe that this is, um, there is a systemic problem in our society, isn't it? I mean, people in prison are considered disposable. And, and and that really is a shame because we'll get to this later, but we'll talk the numbers in terms of how many people end up in, uh, in incarceration of some sort. So what are your ideas in how we as a society change that attitude? I think uh, the first step is everything can't be about a zero sum game. Um, can't be about just locking people up being the answer. Um, uh, I think we have to treat the people who come into our system um, as we got to dignify their humanity. And without mm -hmm. dignifying the humanity of people, if they're just data, a news story, you know, faceless, nameless people, then it's easy to uh, discard them. They have no voice. Most felons in most states are disenfranchised. Um, so politicians have no reason to uh, advocate for those who are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated. And mm -hmm. prisoners are pretty much just a low-hanging fruit in our society. 
Well, it's it's also I think the way that a lot of people look at prisons themselves. There's there's been this movement recently for privatizing prisons, so people are looking at it as a profit center, and it's not just necessarily privatizing prisons, which is actually a fairly small percentage of prisons are are completely privatized. But there's uh, all the services in prison, you know, like the phones and and uh, and mail and so on. These are all starting to become privatized services within the prisons themselves, which are designed to make money. There's, uh, I, I don't know what your experience is, but I've talked to others that uh, that that um, has told me stories about charging, you know, up to twenty dollars per minute for a phone call, and you know. Who can pay that, right? I mean, the prisoner doesn't make that much money. Who can possibly pay that? And so, what's your what's your opinion about that? I mean, people they're not only disposable, but they're you know they're looked upon as a profit center. Um, it's always been that way when it comes to incarceration in the United States. Um, yeah, I realized that before pre Civil War, there, there the incarceration rate in the United States was negligible. Um, there really wasn't any to speak of. Uh, Post-Civil War, uh, post-Reconstruction, you had what's known as the Black Codes being implemented. And that was the beginning of convict leasing. Um, so states throughout the former Confederacy began to implement these laws designed to um, pretty much return the slaves to uh, servitude legally um, by incarcerating them. Um, and that really is the advent of what we know as misdemeanor crimes. A lot of those, a lot of misdemeanor crimes like vagrancy, loitering, um, they have their their roots in convict leasing uh, post um, reconstruction uh, in the South. Um, it got so bad that it was to the point where if, an, if a parent was convicted of vagrancy or loitering and returned to servitude, they could literally lease their children out to companies um, for labor. And wow. this became pervasive uh, throughout the South. Um, so you had black children who would be, who were made uh, wards of the state for the purpose of being leased out, not because they committed a crime, but because their parents were returned to servitude leased out as convicts and those states passed laws to be able to do the same exact thing to the children uh, with no due process. It, that, that just reinforces my opinion then that this, that the, since the Civil War, I mean, racism has become part of a systemic issue in the U.S. And, and I mean, the, the fact that this can happen, I, I was not aware that, that parents could uh, basically commit their children to servitude um, really kind of uh, continuing the oppression that occurred before the Civil War, just doing it in a different format after the Civil War. Um, let's talk a little bit more about that, because just before we started to go on the air this time, you told me about a paper that you wrote that may have um, some implications in the state of New Jersey. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Oh, yes. Yeah, so um, I wrote a paper uh, my second year of law school for my uh, civil rights litigation course on an idea about police reform, uh, an idea of contactless policing. Um, I'm from New Jersey originally. Um, every time I go home, I get these tickets in the mail for the toll booths because I don't carry cash. And in New Jersey, that's the only way you can pay for a toll, mm. even in 2021. Uh, so I would get these ridiculous bills, you know, $3 for the toll and $40 administration fees. Um, so I just thought about how we could use that technology um, to minimize uh, interactions between the police and the community um, to minimize harm. Um, and so the idea is that anything that is not uh, an arrestable offense, uh, all civil infractions, you know, whether it be a broken taillight, rolling a stop sign, uh, expire tags. Um, we would use that same technology, you know, taking a picture of your license plate and mailing you the infraction. Um, and so I'm working with the New Jersey legislator right now, uh, legislature on a bill um, to make that the law. 
Well, it's certainly a much more positive way of approaching this uh, police, the policing issue that we have in the states right now. Um, I mean, at the extreme, you have people that are advocating for defunding the police, although I think that that entire uh, narrative is is largely misunderstood. Uh, But you're more, this particular paper sounds like you're advocating for simply reforming the way that police interact with people. Oh, yes. And it, 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 it'll help on multiple levels. One, it makes it easier to um, educate the public about their rights when you get pulled over. Um, because under this idea, uh, a, a cop is pulling you over. He has prob- either probable cause to believe a crime has been committed or it's an active criminal investigation. Um, so your rights will kick in automatically um, if you're pulled over mm-hmm. under uh, that law. Um, so it will also, I think, help to um, improve relations between especially the black community and the police. Um, if you can reduce stop times, you know, 90, 95%, um, what can you do with that free time your officers have now to improve relationships with the community. Um, So now you have a young black kid learning how to drive, just got his license out in the world. Uh, His only interactions with the police is not an adversarial one being pulled over, um, which often leads to conflict, often leads to tragedy. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. Orlando Castillo um, and the the names that are too many, to even uh, mention at this point, all of them. But I think on multiple levels, uh, it it is a positive uh, and it also um, would eliminate the fact that, you know, what we call pretextual stops where a cop wants to pull you over and search your car for, but he finds uh, you, you, you know, you, you cross the red, you cross the white line on the median, uh, you roll the stop sign, but it's really just a pretext. Um, to give him a reason to uh, escalate uh, the situation after they pull you over. And wh- where where is this now in, in the le- the state legislature in, in New Jersey? What um, what um, it's going through drafting right now. Um, it, New Jersey is re- currently in their lame duck session. Um, they have odd year elections. Um, so once the new session begins in twenty twenty two. Uh, expected to be introduced uh, sometime uh, in the new year, early in the new year. And you have a, a sponsor for it within the legislature already? Yes. Yes, there's already a sponsor, yes. Okay. Do they let you put your name on that as well, just out of curiosity? I really don't know anything <laughs> how that works. Um, um, I do know in the latest draft of the bill, they actually put like four or five paragraphs of my paper directly into the bill um but as far as the name uh probably somewhere in the legislative history i expect there will be uh hearings i may wind up testifying you know at the, the hearings they hold on it um and that type of thing. so yeah okay good well maybe they'll call you up there to uh perhaps uh, give more insight and, and talk directly with the lawmakers there that would be I think uh, uh, for a person who's pursuing law for a uh, for a living, uh, that would be a pretty exciting thing. It's already pretty exciting to have the legislature uh, approach you about a paper that you wrote as an undergrad, um, and actually make a bill out of it. That's that's quite a thrill. Um, yeah. Incidentally, I I've I had the same experience with the tollways around Chicago. Um, I, I tried to. I actually had the cash on me, and I pull up to the cash lane, and there's there's nothing there. There's nobody there. The, the the gate is open, so I just drove right through. And, and about three months later, I get these bills in the mail. I'm like, what? So I finally figured out how to beat the system. I I, uh, I at least Illinois, anyways, allows you to log into their um, their Department of Transportation and give them your license plate up front plus your charge card number. And so now I can just drive right through without having to worry about it. And they'll just, um, I won't accrue any sort of penalty or anything like that. They actually scan my license plate and uh, I get the bill in the mail, which is uh, 
um, it's a pretty good system. Anyways, yeah. I, I want to get back to the uh, to the to the uh, to the um, talking about incarceration, and I want to talk a little bit of numbers right here. Uh, and this is according to the Prison Policy Initiative, uh, and they are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. And by the way, we had Wanda Bertram from the Prison Policy Initiative on this podcast August 8th of this year. Anyways, the Prison Policy Initiative uh, said that on their website, they say there is roughly 2.3 million people locked up in more than 6,000 correctional facilities operated by thousands of agencies across the nation. And if you work out the math, that's about 0.6% of our total population. And when I say total population, I mean anyone from newborn to the grave. And, um, and actually, that's actually somewhat off its highs. It's, it's come down recently, but still it's way high. And, you know, the U.S. likes to think of itself as leading the world in a lot of things. Unfortunately, in terms of, of prison population per capita, we also lead in that area, too. And here's some of the countries we beat out for the top title. Uh, El Salvador, Cuba, Rwanda, Turkmenistan. Um, so this perhaps goes back to an earlier part of our conversation, but what in your view is going on here? Why are there so many people locked up? Um, I think to truly understand it, you got to go back once again to its genesis, what we talked about earlier, and understand who is being locked up, who's being targeted. Um, uh and I think one thing that get, has been lost to history is the fact that, you know, we look at the uh, slavery uh, versus abolition debate of the 1800s. Um, and we often view the abolitionists as people who advocated for equality. Mm-hmm. And the majority of them did not. Um, even Lincoln himself didn't believe that free blacks had a place in free society. Um, his initiative was colonization. Um, there are scholars who believe colonization was as important to him as abolition. Uh, by colonization, I mean the idea that he would establish colonies outside the United States for the slaves who were free to go mm-hmm. and um, So you have a country whether conservative or liberal or whatever, um, the political persuasion. Um, though they disagreed on the horrors of slavery, they were unified in the idea that Black people were less than, uh, that Black people had no place in free society. So yeah. fast forward post-Reconstruction, post-Lincoln's assassination, um, the country rebuilding itself, and now you have all these freed slaves Mm-hmm. Um, nobody believes has a place in free society in America. What do we do with them? Um, uh, one thing we don't like to talk about is how uh, America became the most prosperous nation pretty much off of free and cheap labor. Yeah. Um, uh, so the most, the biggest asset of the South uh uh, money-wise, uh, value-wise, were slaves. Um, it exceeded by far any other industry. Um, so how do you replace this labor and maintain uh, your lifestyle? Um, yeah. The answer to that was, you know, convict leasing. Um, if you look at the Black Codes um, and how they were implemented, you know, the Southern states actually had a conference and appointed a commission and they studied this issue. This is not, this isn't something that just randomly happened and spread. Like they studied this issue. Um, they came up with a detailed plan in writing. Um, and so when you see the when you see these laws popping up in Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi all at the same time, uh, this isn't just happenstance. This isn't just this this bright idea of individuals uh, uh scattered throughout the South. This was a calculated plan put together by highly intelligent people um, to continue uh, their dominance and their wealth and their dynasties. And black people were uh, the tools and the pawns that they used um, to further that. Mm-hmm. So that, that kind of brings us to the critical race theory 
Um, and I understand this has just been blown out of proportion, uh, critical race theory in general. Um, as you yeah. well know, much more than me, that uh, being a law student that you are, that this is really a law school course developed out of Harvard. But aspects of it are, um, are it's being recommissioned in a way or repurposed in a way by the extreme right to uh, justify not teaching this specific part of history in our schools. And the, the specific part of history, the history that you're alluding to here, that the uh, the leftover sentiment from from pre-Civil War uh, has lived throughout our society, has lived to today, and is not only just a matter of tradition, but is a matter of being codified into law. Do you have any comments about that? Yeah, I think, um, I don't even think they're afraid of it being taught. The, the extreme right is very good at using um, race, um, gender, sex, that type of thing to um, incite their base. Mm -hmm. um, to me, this CRT debate is no different than if you remember shortly after Obama uh, took office, there was this race uh, through these red states to ban Sharia law. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, you know, Obama's against banning Sharia law as if you know the Constitution doesn't already ban Sharia law. Right. Um, it was a fake argument, kind of like this CRT argument. They're not teaching this in elementary school. Like I'm in law school and haven't had a CRT class. Um, it's an elective even in law school. Um, so it's really um, inflammatory rhetoric um, used to incite people. The majority of people that's adamantly against it had never heard of it, you know, 12 months ago. Um, don't know what it is, can't explain to you uh, any of its tenements. And so, you know, we're just in a dangerous place where, you know, facts don't matter. Um, or as the Trump administration, alternative facts. Um, yeah, exactly. It's just a dangerous place when you're arguing for a position that you aren't educated on, whether you're pro or anti. Um, um, there's just a lack of, of knowledge. And it's really kind of inexcusable in this age of information that if you really want it to be educated on it, you could educate yourself. Uh, but once again, those in power, um, they know what they're doing. They know how to manipulate the masses. Um, there's a quote from Adolf Hitler about people. Um, and I think it's just telling. It says um, how fortunate it is for leaders that men don't think. Um, and mm -hmm. you see this group think taking place and everybody's in their little tribes where, whether it be uh, far right, far left. Um, I think the majority of Americans are in the middle and really don't care either way. And they're more concerned with the economy, education, uh, their day-to-day -day lives. But these are just scare tactics being used um, to shake people. But do you think it, at its core also that it is an attempt to whitewash our history? And I give you an example. In, in Missouri, our attorney general is, is a guy by the name of Eric Schmidt. And on Indigenous Peoples Day, as you know, used to be called Columbus Day. Now it's Indigenous Peoples Day uh, for good reason. And but he made this quote on Twitter and he got a lot of heat from yours truly but uh, more significantly, he even got heat from the, from the mainstream press on this. He said um, that Christopher Columbus uh, discovered America and proved that the earth is not flat. And I have to say, wow. I mean, this is something that I was taught back in grade school. Fortunately, right. in high school, uh, I was, uh, I'm basically a nerd, right? So I ended up in physics classes in high school and our instructor enlightened us to the fact that, no, the ancient Greeks had the, actually had the earth figured out and, and were pretty accurate in estimating the size of the earth. And so it leads me to believe that, that we are being taught these tall tales, these mythologies that give, America a, give Americans a false sense of entitlement, uh, manifest destiny, if you will, and so Definitely. it ends up whitewashing our history. And so when this issue of, of critical race theory comes up, the part that frustrates me most is that we as Americans should be learning more about 
our true history, it doesn't make us hate the country. It makes us respect, uh, perhaps even respect it a little bit more for the distance that we have covered, but also make us realize we have a lot further to go. Um, but it's frustrating nevertheless, because it's not, it's, I agree with you that the extreme right, it's sort of a power grab for them. They've repurposed CRT as a power grab. But it's also a way of, of maintaining the status quo that existed before the Civil War and continues on to this day through all these tall tales. Definitely, but I don't think it whitewashes our history. I think our history has always been whitewashed. Um, so I think it reinforces, because uh, nobody wants to, believe kind of like what you said that they've been lied to by the teachers and people they love and uh honestly a lot of them weren't lies they believed it because they were taught it themselves um so it kind of shakes people's foundation because if you teach the truth now you have to deal with and confront the wrongs that have been done and yeah. things like equity and justice and restitution mm -hmm. uh words that are already a part of our legal vernacular when people have been legally wrong. Now those come into play. Um, but if we can keep this idealistic view that we've been fed for centuries, then it makes us feel better about the life we're living. Um, it makes us feel better about being Americans. It makes us feel better about our history. And, and uh, it makes it easy to willfully turn a blind eye to injustice. Yeah. I mean, and that, that's at the end of the day, that's the big tragedy, right? That we like to think that we live in a just society. And, but in a sense, if we ignore our history, our true history, we cannot move forward into a truly just society then. Definitely. Um, I think one thing that those who, push uh, these types of, of uh, ideology, understand is that um, if you look over the, the course of American history um, and, you know, the title of your um, podcast, Democracy, if you look at um, the history of American democracy, um, the majority of white people have never voted for progressive ideas. Um, Lincoln didn't win the majority of votes. Like he didn't, he got what, five votes in the entire South. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the civil rights movement, um, the majority of white people voted for the anti-civil uh, rights factions. If you look at women's movements, the majority of white people voted against that. Um, if you look at gay, anything from gay rights to healthcare reform, and you, if you look at all those things, and you ask yourself who has voted for it and who has voted against it, um, you've really got to confront that fact that uh, the majority of white Americans have never voted for progress for anybody other than white Americans. Um, so I think some of the angst and pushback you see now post Obama is the fact that uh, people feel that um, these people who formerly never had a stay in the system and in how things uh, were instituted uh, now have a voice. Um, although we know um, that it's a very minimal voice even now, uh, perception is reality in politics. And a lot of people's perception is that, you know, um, there was a quote by, a clip by Donald Trump back in I think the late 80s, early 90s, where he said he would love to be a young African-American in this era, in that era because of all the advantages that African Americans had and you know at the time he's saying this 100% of the Senate is white um you know mm -hmm. uh, the incarceration statistics uh mirror what they are now um so there's this perception but the reality is you know even with like affirmative action programs um before affirmative action programs began in the early 70s African-Americans were 5% of attorneys. Here we are 50%, 50 years later, and African-Americans are 5% of attorneys. Um, but the perception is that these programs have helped African-Americans. Um, I think they've helped 
moved some into better or more prestigious schools, but it hasn't done really anything to increase the numbers. Um, if you look at who it has helped, uh, the group that has benefited the most uh, are dem demographically speaking, the most opposed to affirmative action programs. Um, women were single digits uh, as far as law student goes before affirmative action programs began to kick in. Uh, now, women are the majority of law students. Um, but if Blacks are only 5% as a whole, and Black women roughly half of that, which would make them 2.5%, then who are the women that have benefited from affirmative action mm -hmm. for, to push them to the majority? Um, so I think you get this rhetoric, this discontent. Um, if you look at every law that's ever been passed with the intentions of helping um, the descendants of slaves in this country from the 14th Amendment on, white people have benefited from those, from those laws and black people have almost suffered as a result of many of those laws. Uh, most people don't realize this, but the only reason that you have the right to carry a gun and a state can't infringe upon that right is because of the slavery amendments. You know, the 14th Amendment incorporated the constitution and made a binding upon the state. Um, so a lot of the rights and liberties that people enjoy um, that their state governments can't infringe upon is the direct result of laws and amendments that were passed to benefit uh, African-Americans. Hmm. So it's interesting then, I guess, in terms of the raw numbers then, that affirmative action has not... Um, I, I guess I would say it hasn't hurt, but it hasn't helped either as much as perhaps the Correct. original framers had anticipated. Correct. Oh. But that's not the perception. Right. The perception is that all these black people are benefiting from affirmative action. And that's just not the case. Well, it, it gives, um, it also gives, I think, a, a lot of white people a, grounds for grievance, right? For reverse discrimination and things like that. It's right. these things uh, from that context, it sounds like claiming reverse discrimination is sort of blown out of proportion as well then. Oh, definitely. Um, and honestly, I think um, when you look at the constitution and this supposedly colored blind uh, society that the Supreme Court has decided we're supposed to live in, um, I don't, the Constitution doesn't ban inclusion. The Constitution bans exclusion. Um, uh, so excluding someone on the basis of their race, gender, um, national origin, those are things that are repugnant to the ideal, the principle of all men being created equal. Uh, choosing to include people um, who have been intentionally excluded, uh, and now it's become this thing where the Supreme Court is saying you can't do that. Um, I think that is a slap in the face to establish legal principles, things like restitution, uh, restoration. Um, I think if you were intentionally excluding people to make that right, you have to be every bit as intentional about your inclusion or it means nothing. Um, if mm -hmm. If I tie, if me and you are running a race and I tell you, I, I, I fire the gun, but tell one guy he can't run yet. And the other guy's halfway done with the race. And then I tell the other guy, okay, I'm not going to stop you from running anymore. What have I done? This is still not equitable. Uh, but then I'm pointing at him and say, yeah, this guy's behind, but I'm ignoring the reason this guy is behind. So just the fact that I've taken, you know, the the chat the shackle off so to speak means nothing when I provided this head start um, and that's some of the things that CRT points out you know the fact that the GI Bill um, pretty much built middle class America sent all these soldiers to college created opportunities allowed them loans to buy houses and build wealth and the black soldiers who came back at the fighting overseas for this country were denied 
all those opportunities. Um, so what, what CRT really says is um, while we're teaching the fact that the GI Bill uh, built, you know, the, the baby boomer generation, um, we should also teach the fact that black soldiers were denied that opportunity and their descendants, there's generational suffering as a result of those denied opportunities. And how do we address that? And how do we make that right? That's pretty much uh, what CRT focuses on. And that's, that's where I get, um, I think when people start talking about, you, you, you had you had this, this race analogy where somebody's held back, this, um, I'm trying to relate these concepts in my head, so forgive me if I wander around too much, but uh, people talk about meritocracies these days. They say everybody should be judged based on their performance and not based on you know racial or, or religion or sexual preference or things like that. But at the same time, though, if somebody is being held back from that, hypothetical race that you referred to where you know somebody's held back for half the race and then they're then they're allowed to run um you can't sit there and say okay now everything's equal right because some guy was was you know for half the time being being shackled if you will to the starting line i don't i guess guess i'm trying to square the circle in my mind because people oftentimes refer to meritocracy as being like this ideal uh society where you know unicorns fly around and uh, everybody's equal, but it's not. It never started off that way. So how can it suddenly be equal now? Yeah, I think what you're talking about speaks to the difference between being fair and being just. And we have this hyper focus on being fair, and oftentimes being just means being unfair. Uh, and what I mean by that is, um, I had a teacher when I was in grade school, and she had this rule that you couldn't eating class. Um, if she caught you eating candy or cookies or anything like that. Um, you know, you got in trouble. You got embarrassed in front of the whole class. And um, one day there was this kid just blatantly eating in class. And everybody's seeing this kid like eat this candy bar in class. And she's not saying anything. Mm. And it happened another day and another day. And finally, we started complaining. And she explained to us that this kid uh, was a diabetic and that he needed to eat mm-hmm. uh, his life depended on him eating but uh she wasn't going to relax the rule he wasn't going to change the rule because of one kid was eating was it unfair that he got to eat yes but was it just that he got to eat of course it was um his life the quality of his life was more important than this rule um but mm-hmm. we live in a society where the rules are now more important than the quality of life. Um, and any any system where the rules are more important than the life is an unjust system. Um, you know, a mom being fair would be everybody gets the same amount of food. But if I'm 50 pounds heavier than my younger sibling, just to say he requires more calories than you. So I'm not going to be fair. I'm going to be just. And so I think we got to change how we think about uh, how we approach um, these principles in our society and approach it from a standpoint of what is just versus what is fair, because what is just is oftentimes unfair. And it sounds crazy if you really don't think about it, but it's it's a, just a truth. Um, being fair is always, sometimes the enemy of justice. Yeah. I want to. We're talking about this issue here of of justice, fairness, racial issues, critical race theory, and so on. I've got. I want to highlight this one book. It was a book that was written by um, a book written by Jessica Henry, and the book is entitled "Smoke but No Fire: Convicting the Innocent of Crimes That Never Happened." And this book terrifies me. And if you just bear with me for a moment, I'm going to read you an excerpt out of the book. And I hope that Jessica Henry doesn't mind me reading this excerpt, but it highlights a issue, and we can talk about fairness and justice after the uh, after we read the excerpt here. So here it goes. 
The South Central Texas Regional Narcotics Task Force engaged in racially motivated drug sweeps of African-American communities in Hearn County. In one sweep on November 2nd of 2000, 25 men and two women were arrested for a drug-related conspiracy based on the word of an informant who was known to be mentally unstable. Among those arrested were Regina Kelly and Irma Faye Stewart. Now, bail was set at $70,000, which was far too high for either woman to pay. They were both single mothers working as waitresses to make ends meet. Neither had, before, neither had been charged with a serious offense before. Now, their assigned lawyers strongly encouraged the women to plead guilty, but then the women's paths diverged at that point. Three weeks after her arrest, Kelly's parents advocated to have her bail reduced to $10,000, and she posted bond to await her day in court. Stewart, however, remained in jail. Worried about her two small children, Stewart insisted she was innocent, but decided to plead guilty in exchange for a sentence of 10 years probation. She was released immediately upon entering her guilty plea. This is where things start to go bad to, from bad to worse. Stewart was one of seven defendants out of 27 people arrested who chose to plead guilty. Of the remaining defendants, some, like Kelly, were able to post bail. The others were held in pretrial detention at the local jail for five months while they waited for their cases to be called for trial. Finally, in February of 2001, after the first case was docketed, the prosecution admitted its case had crumbled. The charges against all of the defendants had been based on the word of an informant who blatantly lied. There were no drugs and no drug conspiracy. The prosecution dismissed the charges against the arrestees who had not pled guilty. The dismissals came too late for Stewart, whose short-term benefit of a prompt release after her guilty plea was eclipsed by the long-term consequences of being a convicted drug felon. Because of her criminal record, Stewart was evicted from public housing and became homeless. Her children were placed in foster care. She became ineligible for food stamps and it was hard to find and maintain a job. So that's the end of the excerpt there. Now when I read this, um, I felt my own blood pressure starting to go through the roof because here's a story. Somebody basically lied People went to jail for five months, the liar recanted, and the case fell apart, and the people who didn't want to stay in jail and took the bait of pleading guilty have to live with the consequences for the rest of their lives. And most tragically, the bottom line is a mother lost her children over this issue. So these kind of things happen. I guess they happen. It, 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 there's the, the, the book is... is is, has several other stories very, very, very similar. I guess where is fairness and justice in this? And I guess most basically, how the hell can this happen? Well, I think if you look at who it consistently happens to, that that answers the question. Mm -hmm. um, people who have no voice, people who nobody is going to listen to when they say I'm being, I've been framed. I didn't do this. Uh, people who have uh, uh, no ability to make a cash bond. So now uh, it's not about defending uh, my innocence. It's about salvaging what's left of my life. Mm -hmm. um, prosecutors are trained to uh, overcharge you, to coerce plea bargains. The, the, the jury trial is disappearing. Um, I believe the framers of the Constitution would be horrified uh, by how easy it is to convict people without a trial uh, in modern day America. Um, but the, the, the flip side of that is the people who are disproportionately being convicted weren't uh, imagined by the framers as being part of this society. Um, so, uh, is just, and I believe, is that Tulia, Texas? Is that the Tulia case that you, that she was writing about? Um, well, the young lady's name was, was uh, uh, Stuart, um, Irma Faye Stewart. 
I don't know what the case is. It was from 2000, November 2nd, 2000 is when the arrest took place. And yeah, uh, I believe that was the case where there were like, I think over 40 people just arrested on this one guy's word. Mm -hmm. um, so just think about it. Uh, do you really think that you could go through the suburbs of America and, rep and, and, and lock up 40 people and convict most of those people based off the word of one guy? that has not been corroborated by anybody, by any evidence, um, that wouldn't happen in, in a white community. Uh, yeah. There are resources, um, the news would be there the first day, you know, what's right. going on? You know, we're not gonna allow you to just do this to our children based off one person's uh, word. I mean, just look at how, you know, thousands of, if not tens of thousands of people rallied around uh, the Rittenhouse kid. Mm -hmm. uh, once he's charged uh, with murdering two people. Um, so it, just, it goes back to the low-hanging fruit and how um, America has great foresight, but very, I mean, great hindsight, but very poor foresight. Uh, if you look at the Central Park kids who were convicted of that rape mm -hmm. and how everybody now is including the media is rallying around this injustice and demonizing the prosecutor. Well, the media took part in yeah. the public lynching yeah. when it happened. I remember um, when that so happened. Yeah. What was the foresight of the media at, at, at that point? What, why did nobody ask, like, how could five teenage boys commit a, this gruesome of a crime and leave no physical evidence? You know, nobody asked that just a simple question like that. You couldn't commit a crime that gruesome and not leave physical evidence if you were a CSI crime scene investigator, like it would be impossible. Uh, but these are the type of questions that don't get asked and get ignored um, when mm -hmm. talking about um, the low hanging fruit that black people are in America. I mean, just look at the gall of the defense attorneys in the Arbery um, closing um, and how they just attacked not only his character, but his physical presence, how he looked, you know, yeah. or uh, a defense attorney to call a murder victim dirty and, and how did he come in our neighborhood with the dirty toenails being a, like, it's just, it harkens back to racial tropes. And we're still in a place where people um, believe that these racial tropes can save the day, that we can harken back to these stereotypes, scare white people, and everything will be all right. You even saw it in the uh, uh, the trial of the cop who uh, mm -hmm. murdered uh, Jacob uh, in Minnesota. Um, I said George Floyd. George Floyd. Yeah, George Floyd. Yeah. The Derek Chauvin trial. Like you, you saw even his attorney uh, falling back to that because the evidence wasn't on their side. The law wasn't on their side. So. You know, how do we get out of this? We got to scare some folks and turn the black, this black person into a boogeyman. Um, so until we begin to challenge that when we hear it, um, challenge that when we see it uh, and change that dialogue um, before the injustice is done. You know, it's easy now to hail these Central Park guys as heroes, but they needed you. They needed their, they needed support in the moment um, before their lives were, were ruined. Um, so, and that's just uh, a tradition in America. Dr. King was hated in life. And today, even conservatives quote him and hail him as this hero. Uh, but once again, that's hindsight versus foresight versus the moment. And we're often behind the curve in the moment. And that's how racism perpetuates and systemic racism continues because we can always look back and say they were bad, but it's much harder to look at ourselves in the mirror and ask, what am I not doing uh, yeah. in the moment um, to help uh, solve these issues? And, and that's what, you know, getting back to critical race theory, that's what I, not critical race theory as a, as a uh, college um, coursework, but what it's been twisted into be that to me is the tragedy in that it doesn't it, it it doesn't allow or I should say it doesn't support the notion of 
everybody looking back to see where we came from, but then more importantly, asking ourselves at the moment, what's going on? You know, when you have when you have redlining that, that are people are redlined into districts and then gentrified out. I think Pete Buttigieg said that at one point. Um, I'll give you an example here in St. Louis, the geospatial uh, geospatial department, I think it's called. They uh, are now based in St. Louis. They're building a big uh, uh, facility in North St. Louis, and they're clearing out a lot of neighborhoods in order to do this because it's a fairly large facility. And everybody's breaking their arms, patting themselves in the back. But very few people, like myself, are asking, "Wait a minute, what about the people that were living there? You know, what are we doing? What are we doing there?" And it, it's it becomes forgotten people, right? They just have to move out of the way and find some other place to go. And but you know, as as bad as you think their neighborhood might have been, it was their neighborhood, right? And right. so, what sort of reconciliation is there? for for people and and the, the the reality is well i don't know what the statistics are but i'll i'll be willing to bet that most of them are renters anyway so they didn't have any rights once their once their lease was up their landlord said hey i'm getting you know a million dollars for this plot of ground right here you're out of here you know and i don't care where you go um and, and that's a situation yeah. where 50 years from now that community uh, of people in st louis will look back and talk about how wrong that was yeah. Um, yeah, but in the moment, everybody's turned a blind eye, and yeah. as long as that cycle continues, and it, and and until we get to the point where we understand the genesis and the system that was put in place, and laws that were implemented to, implemented to make things like gentrification possible, until you address that at its root, then it'll always continue. Uh, and a lot of people are ignorant of how intentional uh, this is. You know, they're ignorant of the fact that even with public housing, the government forbid mixing of races. So they created ethnic ghettos um, and uh, put the white public housing facilities in different neighborhoods and gave them different amenities and uh, services that were available that weren't available in the public housing uh, projects that were uh, dedicated or marked for Black people. So this idea that, you know, it's, it's popular to think and it's easy to think because it kind of logically makes sense that, oh, you know, Black people just chose to all live together in the same neighborhoods, but that's not what happened. This was right. done by design. Um, and, and unless you study that history, you will never know. Um, and I, I like to say that you never know how much America believes in a principle until it has a black face. Um, so when you think of principles like free speech, why is that not being applied to the CRT discussion? Why is, why is the free speech uh, conversation totally not even a part of the dialogue, even with the media? Uh, the government can't ban based on precedent, Supreme Court, right? You can't, the government can't ban um, a topic based on disagreeing with the viewpoint. That's called viewpoint discrimination. Um, but across these state that, that these states that champion themselves as defenders of the constitution, they're trampling on the first amendment and people are looking the other way. And that tells you that when freedom of speech has a black face, we don't care about freedom of speech. Um, when due process has a black face, we don't care about due process. When uh, the right to not have excessive bail has a black face, then we don't care about excessive bail. Um, so you never know, in my opinion, what America really believes about an issue until that issue has a black face. Hmm. What can we do? I mean, well, first of all, let's start with you. I mean, you 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 are now uh, about to graduate. I think this this coming May with a juris doctorate degree in in law, and um, I believe before we started talking on the air today, you said you were going for your bar exam. So you're obviously on the path to do something positive. Um, what is? I can't. You know, I, I don't. 
know what your specific strategy or your tactics are, but in general, what is your approach to helping make this a better nation? I think um, we have to tell the stories of people and, and tell the story of how we got to where we are um, because there's just so much ignorance of our true history. Um, for instance, um, you know, my family, you know, many of my family members uh, don't understand that uh, some of the most liberal, some of the most oppressive laws have come from liberal uh, administrations. When you look at, you know, some of the most violent police forces in America, they're ran by liberals. Um, so this notion that um, there's one party or another that is more pro equality, I think is still off. Um, it's still not rooted in reality. I mean, think about it. We spent the first year of COVID seeing social demonstrations like we've never seen in American history. And it's brought about no systemic change, uh, no systemic police reform. Uh, none of that has happened. Um, mm -hmm. If you look at it, uh, a lot of these redlining and uh, um, uh, these anti-black uh, housing laws and these racial covenants as they were, a lot of them we're in lib bastions of liberality. Chicago, you know, the seminal case comes out of Chicago where the Supreme Court struck down uh, the covenant. So black people, I like to say, are politically homeless. Um, and I think one thing that even when you look at progressive white people, um, I think one thing that people who believe in equality and progressive politics have to do is get divorce themselves from the notion that you're tied to a party um, and make alliances based on ideas. Um, when I look at like fences libertarians who are you know against qualified immunity, they're against the war on drugs um, and they're oftentimes considered the extreme part of the far right and progressive are often sometimes considered part of the far left. Um, and it's that gap in between them that prevents them from uniting on ideas that they have commonality on, uh, agreement on. Um, and I think we've got to get past that, this, you're a Republican, I'm a Democrat, or you're this and I'm that, whether it be race, gender, religion, and say, what is it that we basically agree on? Um, and how can we take these thoughts and make these thoughts and these ideas a reality? And once that happens, I think you can shake the system, but you can't shake the system when everybody is stuck in groupthink. And I'm just supporting a policy because the party that I'm a part of says I gotta support it. Um, I think we've got to get out of that, especially those who truly want a more equitable society because you know, Joe Biden is the architect of mass incarceration. And how ironic is it that in the greatest year of social upheaval and demonstrations for social justice that this country has ever seen, that we elect a man to the White House who is everything but that, who represents the status quo, who represents the old way of thinking, who bragged for three, four decades about those policies that he wrote that destroy families. Um, I think that is the irony of ironies that in this moment, we as a country chose a man who was so not made for this moment. And I think that's part of the reason uh, nothing has been done as far as progress and systemic change at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that actually dovetails into like another hour long discussion um, in, a, in a different podcast. I actually spent some time with um, Catherine Gale, who, who, along with Michael Porter, wrote a book called Politi The Politics Industry. And I think maybe that's part of, this, of, of the problem that you're talking about is that both the Democrats and Republicans, really, it's a duopoly here, right? There's, there's other minor parties, but the major parties, the Democrats and Republicans, are basically industries they're not 
really geared toward people. They're geared toward maintaining a multi-billion dollar industry. And the industry just happens to be politics. And so as long as you're stuck in this industry, you're going to, you're going to toe the line. Um, it, it's, it's interesting that, that, that you bring this up too, that, that the party line seems to be pushed all the way down the line from top to bottom in both the Republicans and the Democrats. Although I believe that at this point, it's, the Republicans are a little bit more in lockstep um, at this moment, anyways, as an example, I've never been able to get a Republican to talk on this on this uh, on this podcast here or the other one that I used to run. But um, Democrats are always willing to do it and are willing to go off script and, and talk very openly. And, and uh, um, but anyways, long story short, I see what you're getting at. You can be a progressive, but you don't really have a home for for a true progressive person. There really is no political home at this point no i think i think the the the, the true place for progressives and people who uh equality equity is a, a priority is to truly be a swing vote um and, and and not tie ourselves to a party um like i tell people um these parties decide who they're going to back who the candidates are going to be uh, we believe we have freedom of choice when we go to the poll. And sure, we can pick this name or that name. But what does freedom of choice mean when the options are chosen for you? Um, if, if, if you sit down, you know, kind of like I tell people, my mama, she gave me um, options every night at the dinner table. Take it or leave it. Uh, <laughs> so so I had options every night. You know, they were predetermined. Um, so if if... if if I'm sitting two plates before you and saying, take it or leave it, the idea that I had the freedom of choice is really um, deceptive because there are more options than what are, what is on this plate. But that's all I have the option to choose from. Um, so I think even how we speak of freedom in America uh, has to uh, be reimagined. The dialogue has to be reimagined to really bring about change. And to that end, I'd like to wrap it up here, but um, I think we've already answered this question, but do you have any thoughts on what, any further thoughts, I should say, on what Americans can do, listeners to this podcast, what we can do to make it a more perfect union? I think when you see something, say something. You know, that's a that's like a popular phrase in corporate America now, like when it comes to safety or sexual. But I think, you know, if you see... Um, something that you don't feel is equitable happening in your local courthouse. Um, called district attorneys and judges are, for the most part, elected officials. Um, we need to hold them accountable for the, the injustice and the bad decisions they make. Um, and until we, at a grassroots level, begin to hold our elected officials accountable and let them know that we're not going to stand for this. Nothing's going to change. So I think uh, reach out to your public defender offices and uh, your legal aid uh, offices and ask them how can you get involved and help and change the system. And you know, uh, you see how the people showed up at Cal Rittenhouse. When you see stories, uh, people on the opposite end show up at the courthouse. You know, the judge is going to take notice if hundreds of people are all of a sudden in his courthouse. Uh, the district attorney is going to take notice of that. So I think just being more active, being aware, and being in tune with the boots on the ground, um, the people who are doing the work, the public defenders, the legal aid lawyers, the ACLUs. Um, and when you see these issues taking place in your local community, um, it doesn't take much to pick up the phone or type an email and let them and voice your displeasure. And you will be surprised how far that goes and how that in of itself can bring about change. Thanks. That's really good. Uh, it's, uh, um, I guess they say democracy is a participation sport. Uh, you, if you don't participate, you don't get democracy. And I think that hopefully people, more people are waking up to it, but I think a lot of people are waking up to it. 
I personally have taken that advice and contacted my representatives and uh, not talked to them directly, but I have talked to their staff. Um, in some cases, I've actually engaged pretty well with their staff, and they asked me you know, fairly um, fairly in-depth questions as to why I'm um, you know, asking for a certain thing. So you're right, it does work, and most people don't realize. All you gotta do is pick up the phone. Um, yeah. Emails don't get and answered judges, as much. Go ahead. Judges and, judges and district attorneys often get left off the hook when we're talking about contacting our local representatives. They are our local representatives also. That's good. That's good to know that. That's uh, Yeah, I was just talking about politicians, but you also include judges and, and uh, district attorneys in that. Great. Well, we've been talking with Damon Davis, a soon-to-be graduate of the University of Cincinnati College of Law and soon-to-be public defender. Damon, congratulations on um, on your upcoming graduation, and uh, please let me know when you graduate and uh, when you pass the bar as well. Thank you, Dan. I, I enjoyed the conversation tremendously, and I'll definitely be listening to the podcast. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any suggestions for stories and or people you think we should cover at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through our website contact page at democracyonthemove.org contact or send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org. Democracy on the Move is all one word. You can also comment on our Twitter page at All on the Move. If you find today's podcast interesting and informative, please tell your friends and family about us. And if you would like to help sponsor the podcast at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through the website or email. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in to our next episode.